It's the Bob McCowan Podcast brought to you by Bet Rivers. Download the Bet Rivers online casino and sportsbook app today. I'm McCowan. That's Shannon. And it is hard to believe, but it has been 50, 5 0 years since Canada played Russia in the 1972 Summit Series. Uh, for those of a certain age, it is mm-hmm. something that will stay with you for your entire life, and we'll continue to talk about it. But um, you know what? As a Canadian, you you measure, or or maybe of guys of our generation as Canadians, you remember two issues: where you were when Kennedy was shot, and where you were when Henderson scored. You sure do. Uh, I know where I was in both of those situations, um, and I'm pretty sure our guest today knows. Scott Morrison is the former sports editor of the Toronto uh, Sun. And he's got a new book about the 72 series on the 50th anniversary. We'll talk to him about the series itself when we come back after these messages. Uh, we are back. It's McCowan. It's uh, Shannon on the program uh, today. And um, joining us is um, a longtime friend and associate. Um, we've been in the business together for an awful long period of time and uh, our paths cross regularly, although it's been some time. Scott Morrison is the uh, former sports editor of the uh, Toronto Sun, among other things, worked at Sportsnet and various other places. And he um, he has a book that's uh, uh, new-ish and uh, is being re-released, I guess, uh, re-featured uh, for uh, the fall. It's called 1972, the series that changed hockey forever. Good of you to join us. Thanks a lot, pal. Nice to that's see you. Great. great to see you both, and uh, thanks for having me. Well... Let's go back to that time. It was 50 years ago that um, Canada played Russia um, or the Soviet Union, I guess, more accurately, mm-hmm. in, uh, in what was called the Summit Series. And it was essentially a series that was uh, created sort of out of nothing, but as a result of the fact that Canada's best had not played Russia's best for some period of time. The Canadians had... had uh, we're not participating in world championships. The Russians were uber dominant. And there was this sense that, well, our best should play their best. And so they they arranged this eight-game series, four games in Canada, four games in, uh, in Russia. And I'm trying to go back in my mind, 50 years, a long time, to what the sense was as we got this thing started. And the sense really was, that Canada was going to wipe the floor with these, these Russian players, even though the Canadian players weren't in very good shape, they weren't really probably taking it all that seriously. Nonetheless, how could whatever, whoever these Russians were, and we knew none of them really, um, how could they even be close to the level of competition that uh, the national hockey league could present Scotty? Did you feel that way? Were you among those who thought, this was going to be a wipeout? I did because that's what we were being told. I mean, it was in the media. It was surrounded the team. I mean, the world was such a different place back then. And it it is a long time ago, but you didn't have the World Wide Web yet. And you didn't have any form of social media. And we didn't know much about the Soviets other than they were this black and white image that we saw on the, the nightly news and they scared us because they were communists and they were taking over countries and we, the Cold War was in effect at the time. But you didn't see world championships on TV the way we do now. You might see them occasionally, a, a game here, a game there, perhaps 
uh, in an Olympics, but we didn't know much about them. But what we did know is that the NHL was the best league in the world. The Canadian game was the best game in the world. And how could anybody possibly come close to playing at our level? Because even the, our, our best amateurs, although they weren't winning, and that was a, a great source of frustration and impetus to have this series, but they were still close. So if they could be close, then how could anybody be close to playing the best NHL talent? And that was the, the mindset going in. The players were fed that storyline too. There were some people, uh, some players like a Brian Conacher and a, the late Billy Harris, who had played internationally, coached internationally, who cautioned against having that attitude. But by and large, the, virtually everybody thought that it was going to be a lark, a cakewalk. And that's why the players, even though you know they didn't train in the summer back then, that's what training camp was for. Uh, they all had jobs in the summer, whether it was hockey schools or you know being the pitchmen for the breweries and things like that. Um, you know, they went into it thinking this was going to be a little vacation, and. Uh, well, they were surprised. There were no Russians in the National Hockey League back then. Were there any Europeans? I can't remember. There had been one, and they actually had a confrontation with him in the middle of the series when they had the break after the four games in Canada, and they went to Sweden for eight days. And it was Ulf Sterner who had played briefly for uh, the New York Rangers. And... Uh, and wasn't welcome, didn't feel welcome at any point during his brief NHL tenure. But there were no Soviets at that point. Uh, we started to see some defections later in the 80s. And uh, was it Priak? And I think was the first player, the first Soviet came over with Cliff Fletcher in Calgary, John. You might recall right. that. Yeah. The, um, b- before we actually talk about the, the eight games, Alan Eagleson gets credit for being the driving force. But was he really the driving force? And were there other other Canadians that were trying to push this thing down the road? Well, he was certainly a, a big, big factor in that series coming together. It's, it's interesting because the, the Soviets used the word bored, but they were getting bored with dominating international hockey at the time. And, and it was actually one of the columnists in one of the, the Moscow papers that floated the concept. So, you know, at that time, if somebody in the media in Moscow is floating an idea, it's coming from the Kremlin, uh, <laughs> but floated this idea <clears throat> of having a best-on-best series because they wanted to see just how good they could be. And again, back in those days, and, and maybe that mindset still exists today, but, you know, it was the Cold War was on. It was democracy versus communism, uh, us versus them. And a lot of times, if you could put, an athlete on a podium and put a gold medal on around their neck that was promoting your way of life, your system, that your politics, everything was better. And so I think there was a feeling that if they could get on the big stage and show just how good they were as a hockey nation, that it was another chance to kind of boast about themselves. So they floated the idea and there was a, somebody in the, a fellow by the name actually of Gary Smith, who's got a, a good book out, ice diplomat about the series about how he was involved in it he was in the embassy and his job was to read the papers every day and he saw this and he immediately sent a note to ottawa saying you know the the soviets are floating this idea what do you guys think and then so that was one angle where it came from pierre trudeau was the prime minister at the time and the and canada was in a in a tough way from the standpoint that we had had the flq crisis in 1970 
you know, there was a bit of a division. And so there's problems in Quebec. The West felt kind of distant. The country was in a, in a rough form after going through a really good time in the in, in 60, 67 with the Expo and the Centennial. Uh, and he thought that maybe something like a hockey series, us going on and flexing our muscles and showing how good we were, would be something that could help bring the country together and, and, and turn the attention into something positive for a change. And, you know, there was an election looming at the same time. Um, and then, of course, you know, Eagleson had, uh, had for several years thought about the idea of trying to create a World Cup of hockey because, he, you know, the story was he was sitting at his cottage with Bobby Orr and Carl Brewer, and they were listening to the World Cup of soccer in 1966 on the radio. And he said, we got to have one of these one of these days. So they all kind of came together independently, but together at the same time, if that, that makes sense. So there's a, there were several driving forces behind this. And, you know, Hockey Canada was just launched because we were so concerned about how poorly we were uh, faring on the international stage. So you had Hockey Canada, CAHA. So there were a lot of, a lot of groups that came together to push this through. But Eagleson ultimately became, you know, the driving force and the quasi-general manager of the team, if you will. <laughs> so um, they just they put this thing together, and obviously they go to the National Hockey League and they go and say, "Okay, well, let's get our best players to play their best players." But were they our best players? Did we actually have our best players? Well, the when they announced the series was going to happen, and uh, Clarence Campbell, who was the president of the NHL at the time, says. Well, guess what? It's not happening with our players. And, you know, he had 12 teams at the time. The, the American teams had zero interest in a Team Canada playing against the Soviets. How was that going to help them in any way was the attitude at the time and worried about injuries and all the rest of it. But between and Eagleson was heading the Players Association, of course, back then. So they managed to, between Campbell and Eagleson, managed to figure out how they could pull this off. But one of the, uh, the caveats in it all is 1972 was when the World Hockey Association was launching. And the deal was you can have the Canadian NHL players, but they all ha it had to be a players who were under contract to NHL teams on the eve of training camp in the middle of August, meaning anybody who signed with the WHA uh, wasn't going to be allowed to play at least as far as the NHL was concerned. So that meant they lost the likes of Bobby Hall, J.C. Trombley, Jerry Cheevers, Derek Sanderson, who were all on the original invite list, but were uninvited because of uh, signing with the World Hockey Association. <laughs> I still remember as a kid, and I, you and Scotty, you and I are about the same age. We were in high school. I still remember shots of the game in Winnipeg which was game three of the series of Bobby Hall sitting in the seats. Yeah. With ben still, and, 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 and the, the TV and the TV crew making, albeit a little bit of noise of saying, well, there's our, there's one of our best players and he can't play. And that was that. And, and, and if you recall, just as a, 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 a um, as an aside too, uh, Hudson's Bay was one of the big sponsors of the tournament and they hired Bobby Hall to do their commercials. So, yeah. so he was all over the tournament for the eight games, but he wasn't in the lineup. Well, there was a, I mean, Trudeau, the, he tried to step in and get him into the series. Eagleson wanted him in there too, but Campbell wouldn't budge. And, and the NHL won over the day 
and there was a campaign. I remember they used to have the buttons and billboards around, certainly around Toronto, and I'm sure they were in Winnipeg as well, that the campaign was to hull with Russia. (laughs) (laughs) But for all their pushing, they couldn't get them there. And, you know, the other, so that was four players, pretty good players that could have made a, a difference on that roster. And there was no Bobby Orr as well, because, you know, the Bruins had won the, uh, apologize for the phone, but the Bruins had won the Stanley Cup and he had to have uh, knee surgery uh, after the playoffs. And so he, he came to training camp midway through, but he, uh, the knee just wouldn't, he, he stuck with the team all the way through the, through the series, but and hoped to play once they got to Moscow, but he just wouldn't let it happen. Uh, with Scott Morrison, uh, formerly of uh, the Toronto Sun. So the team is put together, and it 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 appears to be a very good team. It um, it's essentially an all star team uh, from the National Hockey League, but they don't seem to take it all that seriously. There was not an extended training camp as you would as there would be now um the players themselves seem to feel like they could win this thing in half shape and we get set to go with uh, game one in uh, in montreal and it begins much the way most in canada thought it would with two fairly quick goals by by canada and it's two nothing i think after about six minutes scotty is that right? Yep, six. They scored thirty seconds in, and then six and a half minutes, they're up to nothing. And you know, it looks like a cakewalk. And I, I, you know, I wonder how many people turned off their televisions even at that point and said, "Well, this is going to be you know fifteen nothing or something stupid." There's there's no point to this. And I often thought back and thought, well, how would we look at this series today? if it had gone the way we thought it would might go where it was a blowout in every game, would we be sitting here 50 years later talking about this? What do you think? We'd be talking about it in a different way. I just was going to preface that by saying, you know, the training camp, they invited 35 players because they didn't have, they wanted to have at least a couple of quote unquote exhibition games. So they had to create inter squad games to give them some form of preparation. But because of that, you know, overriding attitude that it was going to be a cakewalk. Yeah, training camp was a bit of a a lark. Nobody took it too, too seriously. Um, And, but the one thing was, even when they got up to nothing in that first period, or six and a half minutes into that first period, the first game, the players were sitting on the bench saying, oh my God, what have we gotten ourselves into here? These guys are good. They're in great shape. This is going to be a battle. They knew. Us sitting at home watching, to your point, Bob, just thought, okay, here we go. This is the lark as advertised. And obviously that changed very quickly as that game unfolded, the Soviets winning seven to three. But I think, you know, the prevailing attitude going in, it was going to be a great series, but in a much different way because it was going to be the Canadians showing the world just how terrific they were and how dominant they could be. And, And that's how it was going to be great. But it became great because of all the drama and everything else that the emotions of the day that that played into it had it been a blowout all the way through no i don't think it would have been remembered with quite the same uh, reverence that that it is now because it uh, it would have been what everybody expected and 
And as great as that would have felt, it wouldn't have been a great series for hockey. I don't think. I think if there was that series became a huge victory because of how well the Soviets played in that in mm-hmm. that first game, showing that they could play with our best. And you know, I think too is the the unholy trinity of it was the TV rights holders were Eagles and orchestrated it through Bobby Orr's company and Harold Ballard of all people. <laughs> and we know what Harold thought of the Russians as they became known years later. Uh, but they had a hard time, you know, CBC only wanted to do one game. I mean, the, the Munich Olympics were on at that time too. That overrided the start of it. CTV only wanted a couple games, but ultimately as the drama unfolded, both networks wanted you know, all the games. All of them. Yeah. By the time they got to Moscow. I, I, I can tell you one aside because uh, I joined uh, hockey night's parent company, just as a kid in 76 or 77. And we used to talk about, well, when Hockey Night in Canada did the series and the reality was Hockey Night in Canada did not do the series. They did not produce the series. The president of the company in 1972 was a guy named Ted Huff. And they had meetings at the time and they, they, cause they wanted an exorbitant amount of money for rights. And his attitude was, we're not going to pay for it. We're not going to do it. But within a week of the series being over, everybody's going to think Hockey Night in Canada produced it. And that's exactly what happened. And, so, and, and, and really what happened was that, you, you know, Eagleson or uh, and a few of his, the cronies were able to cobble together both networks to work together. Yeah. And that was the, that was the, really the, uh, the, the fascination that, uh, you know, it was CTV guys, CBC guys working together uh, through the series. Um, and then two guys, Ron Harrison, uh, who ended up working for hockey. And at the time he was a CBC employee, Mellenby, Ralph Mellenby, who was my old boss was allowed to freelance. Uh, and he ended up being the producer. He was a former CTV guy and they, they put it all together that way, but it was, it was done really, as you said, Scotty, in, in such a manner that certain games were on certain networks. Uh, but it was it was put together by binder twine because there wasn't the real demand by either in the network to do all eight games when the series started. Well, and, and by the time it was over, the estimates are for those final games and certainly game eight that I think a population was around 23 million at the time. And the estimates were close to 16 million were watching <laughs> were watching the game. So it turned out to be a pretty good package. <laughs> yes. Well, sure it did. But I think to your question, Bob, I think if it had been, if they'd walked over all eight games and they were lopsided and that, um, the game would have changed eventually, but it wouldn't have changed as quickly because there wouldn't have been as much interest in how the Europeans played, how the Soviets played. Exactly. Wouldn't have borrowed from them the way we suddenly did very quickly. And there wouldn't have been the clamoring to have some of those players over, even though there was great resistance by some. Um, so I think because of how it unfolded, the game changed a lot quicker than it might have otherwise. You, you know, you talk about the, the game in Montreal, uh, which really was a, a Soviet blowout. It really did put the pressure on Canada to, to win game two. Um, and the game at Maple Leaf Gardens um, was arguably Canada's most dominant game of the series. Um, but it was, 
it, it was as pressure packed, I think, as the Canadians had felt in a long time. Don't you, Scott? Oh, guaranteed. I mean, you know, you lose the first game seven to three with, you know, knowing what the, the mindset was going into that series. The team was in shock. The country was in shock. Country was angry because they've been let down by these guys. And so, you know, was game two a must win? No, because you had other games ahead of you, but it, it felt like it was a must win in many ways. It really was, even if you don't want to call it that. The series kind of hinged on it, if you will. And uh, and as much as it was, there, they changed the way they played. I mean, the first game, they only dressed five defensemen, and those guys are absolutely exhausted before the first period was over. Uh, and they they changed the lineup. You know, Bob, you'd use the term originally about them being an all-star game they tried to become more of a team for game two a few more role players put in there a few more guys who could uh, you know a Parise and a Cashman guys like that who could crash and bang a little bit play Canadian hockey and so they played a much more physical game uh, in that second game in Toronto to the point that it was the second intermission the Soviet delegation barged into the officials room and these are all they weren't NHL officials. They were amateur officials at the time. And uh, the one fellow had worked in the American League, but or was about to work in the American League, but uh, complaining about just how physical the Canadians were. They, the Soviets had never seen that kind of hockey before, but that was one of the reasons why they were able to have, you know, play much better in that game. But even saying that, they were teetering a little bit partway through. They were up two to one and they, got, they were shorthanded and, you know, Esposito to Peter Mahovlich, who scores one of the prettiest goals I've ever seen. And, you know, what a lot of guys, Paul Henderson included, says maybe the best goal he'd ever seen scored at Maple Leaf Gardens, uh, shorthanded to put them ahead. And then they, they nurse at home for a 4-1 win. But, uh, yeah, it was that, that was huge uh, just to kind of calm everything down for a couple days at least. Although, you know, they go to Winnipeg for game three after that. They play better. They're up four to two, but then they blow another lead and they they escape with a four four tie. And then we all know Vancouver was a was a disaster. I want to go back to the beginning a little bit because, like you guys, it was before I was um, in the business, so I was not covering anything and no responsibilities at all. I was just an observer, like everybody else. But I remember one thing and one thing only, really, about the start of this series as people were talking about it, and I was listening on radio, reading in newspapers, watching on television in anticipation of the start of this series, and that was the Russian goaltending wasn't very good. That this guy Tretiak was a subpar goaltender, and the National Hockey League players would fill the net behind him. We didn't talk much about the forwards or the defense, I guess maybe because we didn't feel like we knew them well. Enough. But the <clears> we talked about one forward. One out. forward. We we talked about one forward. That was Harlamov. But Trechak, you're right, Bob. Trechak was the story. Trechak was a story at the beginning. Was he wasn't very good? Well, we learned pretty quickly he was better than we thought. And as the series progressed, he became better and better. And ultimately, I mean, the guy's a legend now. Um, and mostly because of that series, but also because of his performance in world championships uh, and elsewhere. What was it about Tretiak that made him as good as he was, in your opinion, Scotty? Well, first of all, the, the, the idea that the goaltending wasn't any good 
was born out of, uh, you know, no exposure to really have seen him. He was a 20-year-old goaltender and he was moving into the big seat. And, you know, the Canadians sent two scouts from the Maple Leafs, Bob Davidson and John McClellan, over to pre-scout the, the tournament, pre-scout the Soviets. And when they got there, everything was just a, a mess. They said, you know, there was no idea, no no way of knowing who the players were because there was no names on the back of the sweaters. There was no lineups in the, the inner squad games that they saw and the practices that they watched. Uh, so they had no real idea of, of a lot of the players and who they were. And, and they were going through the emotions. They were doing a bit of a sales job knowing that these guys were there and they were supposed to be there for a week or so. Uh, and they ended up staying three days before leaving because they just felt it was a colossal waste of time. But when they did see... Trechak in action. Uh, he was horrible. He lost, I think it was gave up something like eight goals or something like that. But he had had his bachelor party the night before and he was getting married the day after. And uh, he wasn't in the best of condition, shall we say, for that game. So, you know, as Ken Dryden says in the game, in the book, uh, he says it's hard to be critical of the scouts because, you know, you can only go by what you see. And that's sure. what they saw was disarray. And nothing being very good. And, you know, normally you scout when you see best on best, not inner squads and things like that. So were they duped? Probably. Uh, but they saw what they saw and that's what they came back with. And so like everything else about the series, there was this misguided notion that the team wasn't going to be very good. The goalie wasn't going to be very good. But what we saw from him that he had, you know, he was unflappable uh, and he was hugely acrobatic and he played a different style deeper in the goal because that's the way the Europeans play where they almost, you know, Pat Quinn used to use the old line, John, you remember, try to pass the puck into the net type of thing. And, and Dryden talks about it, how, you know, our goalies come way out of the net to cut the angle, how he had to learn how to play deeper in his net and wait for the puck to come down to him. And so anyway, so I, I think he was just hugely skilled, acrobatic, athletic, and uh, and he had nerves of steel because think of the pressure going into that series and playing on foreign pond, uh, you know, and probably thinking somewhat too that they were walking into a bit of a trap that the Canadians were going to ambush them. And you know, prior to that first game, Jacques Plante actually went found his way into the Soviet dressing room, which was unheard of at the time, and through an interpreter tried to coach him because he thought he was going to get shellacked as well and uh, tried to teach him a few things about the Canadian shooters and the Canadian style and and where they shoot from and how often they shoot and all the rest of it. I mean, the other famous moment in, in, in the four games in, in Canada was the debacle in Vancouver and then Phil Esposito's famous speech post game with Johnny Esau. Um, how close were the Canadians to walking away? I mean, they remember they were, what were they making a hundred bucks a game? Yeah, not very many. They estimated they probably got a couple grand out of it when it was all said and done. Wow. But, yeah. but that was a, that was a point where there was a lot of the people, a lot of the country had turned the fans in Vancouver had turned on the team. Um, you know, we, we only wanted them to win. We didn't expect them to lose. Um, but where, where, where was the, where was their head head space at that point? Well, I mean, they were wild. Well, I mean, they'd been shocked from game one. They knew all of a sudden, as I mentioned earlier, 
that they were really in deep, that these guys were good and they were in great condition. And they knew that uh, the Canadians knew that they weren't in great condition themselves. Uh, so this was going to be, this was an uphill battle to say the very least. And, you know, they felt that they got sell, sold a bill, bill of goods from the scouting and from all the, the pre-series predictions and being told that this was going to be like a, 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 a laughable exhibition series. And, and it wasn't obviously, uh, so they were angry about that. They were disappointed with how everything was unfolded. Their pride was on the line in a huge way. And yeah, they felt that everybody had turned on them. The players would tell you, said like our families wouldn't even talk to us. There's, you come out of a game afterwards and they'd be berating them in the hallways in the rinks. And uh, so the best thing that happened is that they actually got out of Dodge, as they put it, and, and to move on to have that break and be able to go over to Sweden. And, you know, one of the things that was another factor in all of that from the lack of preparation mentally and physically, but, you know, the, the players on that roster, well, first of all, everybody was promised by Harry Sinden and Eagleson in the beginning, because it was going to be a lark that everybody would play. And so they invited the 35 and everybody was going to get into action. And they realized very quickly after that first game that, if they were going to survive, they were going to have to cut that roster down a little bit and come together as a team. And where I was going is that they had players from 10 different NHL teams. And, you know, back in the day, it was different than, than it is now is that if you played for the Rangers, you didn't like the guy on Chicago or you played for the Leafs. You didn't like the Montreal guy or the Boston guy. And so they had, little cliques on that team and they, they weren't coming together as a group. Uh, you know, the Esposito speech, I think spoke to the country and I think kind of changed a bit of the mindset. People eventually changed the mindset people had about the team understanding that, yeah, these other guys are really good and we were duped just as you were. Uh, but don't take it out on us because we're, we're doing the best we can and we will get better. Uh, it didn't resonate with the team because Virtually none of them had heard about it. And, you know, again, with there not being, you know, all the avenues for information that we have today, they didn't really find out about it until much later. But I do think it turned the fan base in a different direction, being a little more understanding. And, and they witnessed that when they got to, uh, to Moscow for game five and there were the 3,000 Canadians there cheering them on. And there were literally thousands of postcards and telegrams saying we're we're behind you and then they, they started to feel like you know, we're not just playing for ourselves we're playing for the country here the country is behind us and but it was that that stopover that eight days in in sweden where they had a couple of ugly battles with the swedes and Ulf Sterner. um but they came together as a team finally and you know they weren't just guys from the 10 different squads they started to realize they were playing for that one crest that flag on the front the maple leaf on the front and uh, that they better come together and get their act together or else they're going to be supremely embarrassed even more than what they were at that point. So that was kind of a rallying point for them. And, you know, you talked about John where they close to packing it in the Soviets were already playing head games at that point and word had gotten over that the wives weren't going to be allowed to stay at the same hotel as the players and the families weren't going to be able to stay at the same hotel and uh, they had a players' meeting that Esposito, Phil, uh, pulled together. And uh, they just said, this, this isn't 
the rules that we were told when we signed up for this. Um, so it's decision time. If they don't allow the wives and they don't allow the families, it was part of it was even the, the wives weren't going to be allowed into the country, never mind the hotel at one point. And they said, let's go home. Let's call it a day. We're not going there because this isn't what we were, this isn't what we were told was going to happen. And as a group, they said, yeah, if the wives aren't coming and the families aren't coming, then we're going home. It's over right now. And Eagleson took that back to the Soviets. And of course, everything was fine. But as Brad Park said, he said, that was the first time you could say that team did anything unanimously, that everybody agreed on where they were headed and what they were going to do. And he said that was one of the real rallying points before they got to Moscow. We have to take a break, but here we are. Let's kind of pause here. So the Russians win game one, seven to three in Montreal. It's 4-1 Toronto in game two in Toronto. Uh, in Winnipeg, Canadians give up a 4-2 lead, and it's tied 4-4. And then they lose 5-3 in Vancouver. Then there's the Esposito speech on television. And now it's off to uh, Moscow. But first, to Sweden for a couple of exhibition games. We're going to pause here and talk about what happened in those almost two weeks and what led to those final four games, memorable final four games in Moscow. Scott Morrison is with us. We'll come back after these messages. McCowan and Shannon and Scotty Morrison is uh, with us, the uh, former sports editor of the uh, Toronto Sun, who has a new book called 1972, The Series That Changed Hockey Forever. It is the 50th anniversary, believe it or not, of the 72 series. It's hard to believe. Uh, So here we are. We're at the midway point, and these guys go to Sweden, and they played, what, two games, Scotty? Exhibition yeah, games? Two games against the Swedish team, yeah. Yeah. Um, what they do you were, think? Let's be honest. They were bloodbaths. Yeah. Well, they were. Um, what changed? Was there, I mean, was there a significant attitude change after game four on the part of the Canadians? And were they playing themselves into shape, essentially? Well, I think that's the big point, Bob, is, as I mentioned pre- previously, is that they did start to come together as a team. They weren't this, you know, they weren't the Rangers, the Blackhawks, the Flyers, the whatever. They came together as a group that way. They became Team Canada. Uh, but, yeah, they were starting to get their, their legs. I mean, uh, they'd had the four games. And then, again, that stop in Sweden because of how, the series was anticipated. It was supposed to be a bit of a holiday for them, but it turned out to be a training camp for them. And they played two very intense games against Swede, one, one, four, one tied four, four, but they were ugly battles. There was some uh, Cashman took a stick in the mouth and had his tongue sliced and teeth knocked out. Couldn't play the rest of the series. Uh, You know, Sterner was involved in incidents and, you know, get to the point that the uh, the diplomat in the Canadian embassy called them a bunch of hool- the Canadians a bunch of hooligans and and the rest of it. And that word got back to them. And a lot of them will say that that helped to pull them together even more. It's just that all of this adversity was suddenly piling up and, and they were becoming defiant as a result of it. But conditioning was the biggest part. And Harry Sinden uh, and Eagleson and John Ferguson, the assistant coach, they knew it from 
the first game, but they knew that they had to start to shrink that roster by the time they got to Moscow, that they couldn't have be thinking about weaving players in and out game to game to game because that wasn't going to get the job done. They had to pare it down to about 21, 22 guys, uh, including the goalies, and that was going to be the group that would take it through game five to game eight. And then that's why we had the the quote-unquote defections, hmm. uh, you know, leading up to and after game five, which, and calling it defections, you know, it was Hadfield and Rick Martin and Josh Gavremont, and then ultimately Gilles Perot left the team. The players were told, we're going with this group, this roster. If you want to go home, you can. If you want to stay, you can. Hmm. And that was supposed to have been uh, reflected to the media, uh, so when a lot of these players were getting pressure from their NHL teams to say, if you're not going to play, then come back to our training camp and play some exhibition games, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but anyway, so that group decided to return home uh, and they were labeled as being defectors and unfairly. So I think because Eagleson had promised that he was going to tell the media, this is why they're leaving. They're leaving with our blessing, but that message never got yeah. delivered. It's interesting you say that because, uh, you know, the the three young guys, Dave Ramon, Martin, and Perot, never really got painted with that brush. It really fell to Vic Hadfield, didn't it? Yeah, Vic took the brunt of it. Because, you know, yeah, Martin and per- Perot played, he played in game four, and he played in game five, and he was brilliant in both games. But they were, Martin and, and Perot were with Buffalo, and they were un- under intense pressure from Punt Jim Lack. <laughs> I'm shocked. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. I was running things there to get get back and get into their training camp. But yeah, I think because Vic was the, you know, when he was coming off 50 goal season, he played on the great gag line with the Rangers. And, you know, he, he was outspoken through some of the, the games in Canada about not being happy of taken out of the uh, taken out of the lineup. Yeah. So, yeah, but he did take the brunt of it. What was so interesting was the first four games in Canada were kind of up and down for both sides. By the time you got to Moscow, you wound up with, well, what we wound up with was four one-goal games, four games about as close as as they could be. The Russians won the first one. They went up 3-1-1 in the series, and it looked like they were going to win the series. There was almost seemed like no way, no chance Canada was going to be able to win three straight. And of course they did, all of them by one goal. And culminated by the famous Henderson goal with, um, gosh, I'm trying to remember. Was what it do you 36 mean? seconds left? What was 32, it? 32, I think, right? 34 seconds. 34. Well, we okay, there you go. Uh, left in it. Um, but you're re- based on your recollection and the, and the work that you've done over the years in preparation for the book, et cetera, were the four games all very close games? Were they all legitimate one-goal games? I would say so. I mean, game five, Canada was up four to one and they blew it uh, and lost five to four. Um, Despite that loss, and as you'd mentioned, it put them at a point where they had to run the table to win the series. After that, they felt pretty good about themselves because we talked about it. They felt the conditioning was there. The roster had been shrunk um, and that they were coming together as a team. And okay, didn't like the outcome, but felt that they could, they could pull this thing off. And, uh, 
Um, and one interesting thing that happened, because we talked about them getting booed out of Vancouver and how the Canadian, you know, Phil talking to the Canadian public uh, after that Vancouver game is all the players will tell you one of the things that mattered to them. And it's a memory that they will never forget is after that game five, when they lost five to four and they were leaving the ice, the 3000 Canadian fans that were in the Luzhniki arena gave them a standing ovation. And they, that's why they felt Canada is with us and we're playing for the country. We're not just a bunch of guys out here, you know, slogging against the Soviets and, you know, emotionally that really impacted them and and as i say when you talk to them today that's one of the first things they'll tell you about in that series that helped from an emotional standpoint a mental standpoint uh to go into game six and and get the thing back on 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 track with 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 the lineup that harry had decided to put together and pairing it down from a a bigger number and and this is as a memory as a as a viewer and a, you know, a teenage fan, the biggest issue was in goal for us. And uh, how, how did Harry decide that? I mean, could, because <laughs> I still remember as a kid, I still remember when they announced that Ken Dryden was starting game eight, I was apoplectic. <laughs> I was mad. How can you play Dryden? He can't stop anything against these guys. So were a bunch of the players. <laughs> <laughs> There was, uh, and Ken tells the story, I forget what it was, but there was one day he couldn't find, uh, it was between games, he couldn't find one of his skates. And all of a sudden somebody pointed out that they'd used it to keep the dressing room door open. And one of the wiseacres in the room said, that stopped, that's done more stopping than you've done in the series. Yeah, <laughs> That's a door stop. But well, Harry's original plan going in was they were it was Eddie Johnson was the number three goalie. He played in Sweden. They got him some action there, but and he did sit on the bench for several of the games. But it was they were going to alternate goalies, and Dryden got game one because it was in Montreal, obviously. And then they they veered from that because Espo played Tony Espo played so well in in the second game in Toronto that they came back with him for. The Winnipeg game, but they were they are of the, the opinion, especially as the series started to unfold, that playing one guy every game was going to be too much emotionally, if not physically. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that they thought that they had to use both goaltenders. And when they got to game five, they told them this is how it's going to play out. Who's playing which games? And Dryden was slotted for that eighth game. And there were some players who talked to to Harry before it saying, what are you doing here? You got to come back with Tony. And he said, nope, we're sticking with the plan. So Canada winds up, you know, with the three one goal victories uh, to, to close it out. Weren't and they all six, five, Scotty? No, no game two was, or sorry, game two game. The second game in Moscow was three, two. Okay. And then, and then four, three. And then the final one was, was six to five. He's going to say one thing too is that that game five, and I talked about the fans cheering and how they, the team felt emotionally and physically better about themselves. But in that game, had they won, Henderson would have had the winning goal, winning goal yeah. as well. But he suffered a concussion in that game, and he was told by the medical staff during the game, take your gear off, you're done. And Harry came in and said, take your gear off, you're done. 
and he begged Harry, you can't let this, you've got to let me back. You just, I can't end this way. I've got to play. And, you know, it wouldn't happen today, I don't think, but they let him go back. And we all know he scores the three game winning goals, six, seven, and eight. And after that game five, uh, Phil was having some heart pains, palpitations, and they ended up very, very quietly taking to uh, uh, to a hospital. The medical staff took him to the hospital. He did the test, and they found out. It, every, I think he was just it was stress and fatigue and everything else. Uh, but they found out that he had a an enlarged heart. And uh, as I wrote in the book, everybody found found out very quickly that Phil had a big heart and the Soviets did too. <laughs> and, uh, but you think about how history could have been different if Henderson had been taken out and Phil had been taken out. How would those last three games have played out without those two? Well, well I mean, on that, on that point, I think we do have to ask about, you know, the famous Clark Harlamov situation and the, the slash, you know, there are lots of people that, think that it was a cheap shot. Lots of people think that it was the right thing to do as a Canadian. When you win the series, you were thrilled that Harlamov, the best player in not in the NHL was out of the tournament, but what factor did that have? Well, it happened in game six. He finished the game. They didn't play. He didn't play game seven. He came back for game eight, but he was noticeably uh, limited and, you know, he wasn't the same player. He was hobbling. Um, you know, at the time, nothing much was made of the slash. It wasn't a big deal. It became a big deal over time, over That's the years. Right. And with a lot of players, and Paul Henderson was outspoken about it to the point that Bobby Clark and he had, have had some ver- verbal bashes. Mm-hmm. Uh, Paul had apologized at one point. Uh, but, you know, Bobby still talks about how he did what needed to be done at the time and uh, no apologies for it. Um, I think if you look at that series, it was a dirty series on both sides. I mean, Ron Ellis told the story of uh, Gary Bergman taking, getting undressed after one of the games and taking off his skate. And there was, well, first of all, there was a hole in his shin pad because he was kicked by Mihailov. There's a hole in his shin pad. And he says he took, uh, Gary took off his skate, turned it over. And he said there was like a puddle of blood Mm. pouring out of it. So there was a lot of nasty business on both sides of it. So, you know, that one slash has taken on a life of its own, but there were, there was a lot of dirty things that happened on both sides. We've got about a minute left here. Let me ask you this. How do they look? Do you know how they look at um, this series in Moscow today, in Russia today? Was it a success? Was it a success for them because they proved they could play with the NHL guys, or was it a failure for them because they lost? It was a, a success because they proved, as you say, that they could play with the NHL guys. It won't happen this year, sadly, because of what's happening in the world. But over the various anniversaries. They've always they brought the Canadian team over and they've celebrated like they did win the tournament or win the series. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they've honored the Canadians and then celebrated with them. Uh, the players, you know, we talked to Yakashev and Tretjak, they're still bitter about 
what happened, how it unfolded, how they let it get away, because they took their foot off the pedal to a certain degree. They really feel they, after that game five, that they thought this is, we're home and cooked. This is yeah. good. And they underestimated the Canadian resolve. And they talk about that, how the Canadians uh, never give up to that final buzzer. And they said, we took, we, we thought that they might just mail it in after that. And we, we didn't consider that resolve to be as intense and, and powerful as, as it was. So yes, they, they won on one regard deep down. They're still very bitter about losing. And Yakishev says, I've got the box set of all the games sitting on, on my bookshelf at home and we haven't taken the wrapper off it and it's never coming across <laughs> as long as I'm alive. <laughs> so uh, mixed, it is mixed emotions on it, I guess. Yeah, no kidding. 50 years. Wow. That is hard to believe, but 50 years ago, Canada, the U S and the summit series, uh, Scotty's book is uh, 1972, the series that changed hockey forever. We wish you good luck with it. Continued success with it. And uh, great to see you. Thanks a lot for uh, sharing your memories your thoughts and and all all the research that you've done regarding yeah. this series. We appreciate it, pal. Well, thank you very much. Appreciate you having me and uh, great to see you both. We'll <laughs> see you again soon, I hope. Scott Morrison, we'll come back and wrap after this message. We're back. Thanks to Scott Morrison for uh, joining us. And, um, you know, it brings back those memories. Uh, it sure uh, does. You know, every, well, you know, every 10 years or so, Somebody mentions that you don't think about it for a long time. And then you go, oh, wow. Yeah. You know. And your old boss, Bob, and your old boss was a big part of it, man. Foster. Foster. Yeah. You Foster know, called the games. Foster was basically had retired. Oh, yeah. And when, and when they had decided to uh, put the series on television, that was unanimous. There's only one voice that can be the play-by-play man of uh, of of the series for Canadian television, and that was the great Foster Hewitt. And, and the fascination was Bob. I, I again, as I, as I remember, he had no problem saying Yakushev. He had no problem saying Harlamov. He could not say Cornwallier. Cornwallier. <laughs> 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 he could not do it. But to this day, if you go on, if you go on uh, YouTube and, and find Henderson's goal, there's Foster saying Henderson takes a wild stab at it. And he it is it is as brilliant a call as any of any goal we have ever heard. You're not wrong. It would there are memories in there that will live with you forever. Um, uh, I um, I'm sympathetic to those of a younger generation who were too young to remember it. And even though you can watch it now, I don't know if you can get the feeling that we had <laughs> over that month. Well, and and for those people who are younger and, and the Americans that are listening, uh, as great as Lake Placid was, this was 10 times better. I can't disagree with you. Uh, we got to get out of here. We, uh, we thank you for being with us this week, and uh, we'll uh, see you next week. Goodbye, everybody. Goodbye.